Hi, hello, and welcome to the Back to the Pavilion podcast. Thank you for listening. If it's your first time or 20th time, I really appreciate it. If you've missed any episodes, then don't worry. They are all still available to download and listen to on all major podcasting platforms. So go and have a listen and find out what some of the biggest names in cricket have been doing since they finished playing the great game. This week I speak to, in my opinion, the first ever global T20 player. He's played in every major T20 competition across the world and done so with great aplomb. Before that he cut his teeth playing for Middlesex and Essex and also represented England across all three formats. For me though, my abiding memory will always be his wrists and the way they made batting just look so good. So join me as we welcome O.A. Shah back to the pavilion. I think you just know that uh, it's time to move on and stuff. I think you just know, you never think that you would ever not want to play cricket. But uh, I mean, I retired from first class cricket because I, I was one of those people who needed a carrot dangled at the end. Mm. And uh, for me, when England, England carrot, I guess you can call it, um, finished for me, then it was not that easy for me to be motivated to play four-day cricket. Um, but I still persevered because I wanted to actually get back, use the first-class stuff to get back into the England, England fold for a good two, three years. Mm. Um, and then once after that, I thought, okay, I think time is well and truly over that you know my England career is finished. Then I sort of just struggled to get through one or two seasons and then finally decided that you know it's time to move on to just play shorter format. You know, I enjoyed format, uh, shorter format because when my England sort of career sort of finished and I got I found myself out of the England team, out of all three formats, funny enough, uh, I sort of concentrated on the T20 stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, well, I can still try and get back into the test side. Uh, there's nothing stopping me because the only way of doing that is through playing first-class cricket and scoring heavily in that. But in the winter, nothing is stopping me you know, upping my game and trying to adapt to the T20 leagues that are coming up. And, you know, I guess it's still sort of quench my thirst of playing cricket all over the world. Okay. And um, I was fortunate enough to change my game, adapt to what was out there and uh, sort of went on this T20 journey, which uh, turned out to be reasonably fruitful for me. So I was quite happy with that. Um, and then I um, once... I guess, I think I was 36. I think I sort of thought, okay, 35, 36, I can't remember. I, I just thought, okay, enough is enough. I've, I've had enough of four-day cricket. Uh, let's just retire from that, but still want to play short-form um, cricket. So I went on and played for Hampshire for a couple of years as a T20 player. And, I mean, you played T20 sort of all around the world, probably the first British sort of true T20 <laughs> I'm not going to use the word mercenary because I think that's really wrong because I think, you know, earning a career. How did that come about for you sort of going and sort of going global rather than, I mean, because you broke the mould really, you know, a lot of people had been very sort of limited to just playing within this country. You broke that mould and went all over the world. How did that come about? Was that off your own back or did you have a team pushing you to do that? It was off my own back. Everything I've done is really off my own back. Um, I just saw what opportunities were out there. I saw, I guess, like I mentioned earlier, towards the end of my career uh, for England, um, I was uh, also playing regular, uh, regularly in the IPL 
I was playing in the Big Bash. Well, no, sorry, I wasn't playing in the Big Bash then, but I was getting opportunities in the IPL, which is obviously the biggest T20 tournament in the world. And I just thought, well, I've got to use that um, to my advantage. And if I do get an opportunity in IPL, you know, try and perform well. And uh, obviously, perform well in our T20 tournament. And uh, hopefully get noticed worldwide. And all of a sudden, obviously, Big Bash sort of came in for me in South Africa. Uh, T20 and I mean I played a fair bit of cricket in South Africa in the end and yeah it sort of snowballed really because of success in IPL and success in the bigger tournaments such as BPL you know sort of the other tournaments tend to follow Um, and that's how it sort of worked out really for me and yeah you know I loved every minute of it and I'm sort of looking back and I just think you know actually I'm happy the way I went about things I went about it in my view uh, the correct way where I sort of channeled all my energy for playing test cricket for England that was my one and only goal and uh, and I finally sort of achieved it I didn't feel feel I got a proper go at it but at least I was true to myself and I thought you know what I have achieved uh, playing test cricket that is the the first and the foremost thing that I wanted to achieve and then once that sort of finished then I can concentrate on all these oops on all these T20 leagues that are happening. Um, so I feel that is the right way. Not, I mean, I am a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to career, but also, and I'm a little bit old school, um, but I also feel that by targeting the test arena, my basics uh, of my uh, cricket technique or my mindset was, I had a good foundation. That's probably the best way of putting it. A good, solid foundation in regards to putting a game together which could adapt to the longer format. And then obviously, from then on, try and bring it back to the shorter format of T20. So I felt I had good ingredients to start off with. And um, I feel that, you know, sort of did justice to uh, what I put my mind to and ended up working out really, really well for me. And then, I mean, when you stopped playing T20, you went into coaching. Was that always something that you were going to do? I've always loved working with players, uh, passing on knowledge. Uh, look, I was very fortunate to play with some some great players. Mike Gatting, Mark Rampakash, Angus Fraser, Phil Tufton, and all these guys, you know, who all played for England. And I was in a dressing room as a young boy and just learning how they went about, not just technical stuff, but just how you, you know, manage a season, how you how you operate as a professional. And I was happy to learn from them. And then it, I felt I was at that stage where I had to look at the youngsters in the dressing room and I felt I had to pass that knowledge and that standard of behavior and standard of performance that was required uh, for wearing that Middlesex jumper. And of course, you know, that's all linked with England. You know, that's the kind of level that you've got to be performing at. And I felt I had to pass it on. So I, 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 I love working with some of the guys coming through. And um, when I finished playing cricket, I had some coaching opportunities as head coach of UAE. And then I've been a head coach of a T20 franchise recently where we won the we were tournament champions of uh, Bangladesh T20. So, yeah, it's been a good start. Um, and all the time, you know, since I've retired, I've also worked with some, some of the guys who've gone into play test cricket, David Milan, Nick Compton, people like that, expert of six players. I have a connection with them and they always said, you know, can we do some work together? So, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with some, some very good players. Tom Wesley, to mention another guy who's played for England. I worked with him at Essex. 
so yeah just you know just just just, just trying to pass on the knowledge uh, as much as i can and yeah i do enjoy coaching i guess how much planning did you do before you packed sort of playing you know with regards to sort of going into coaching and then you've got um some business interests as well was that was it yeah. in the forefront of your mind before you stopped playing or was it kind of i'm going to devote everything to playing and then when i'm done then i can think about the next steps yeah you got to be naive if you think like that i'm going to play cricket and then i'm going to do that you're crazy i think people would be crazy to do that yeah i was thinking when i turned 30 uh, that's when I started to think. I knew I could play at least, at least till I was 35, 36. I'm a thick guy, you know. I felt I could have done it. So I started looking at when I was 30 because uh, I knew cricket would finish and uh, started looking into property stuff in London. Uh, I started doing that when I was, like I said, 30. I started getting my qualification badges. Um, and yeah, uh, I guess in a way transition was smooth. However, um, the transition was in, uh, the way I wanted it to be. Um, so I guess there's no fairy tales in sport. Very rarely do you have a fairy tale, I think looking back. Um, but however, I, I sort of just, I managed to, um, understand how the real world works. Uh, I think as a sportsman, we all live in a bubble. You know, we don't really, especially as a cricketer, you don't have time. You know, you play five days a week uh, and the whole day, you, you, you should leave your house at eight o'clock, you get back at seven o'clock. You don't have time to worry about what's happening in the world. You're just thinking about your next innings or your next spell the following day. Yeah. Uh, so once cricket finished, you, know, you sort of just step out into the real world and you realize how the real world operates. And um, yeah, it's, it's different. Um, but you've got to be able to adapt. If you, you cannot be set in your ways um, the way you are used to operate in the professional cricketers' mindset as such. I think you've got to make sure that you are adaptable to how the world works and, and try and make a good go of it for yourself and for your family, I guess. And that's what I tried to do. Uh, and like I said earlier, it wasn't a smooth transition. I had a, you know, it was a comfortable transition, but it wasn't a smooth one. Mm. Uh, but however, uh, you know, I mean, I find myself in a good spot right now in regards to my coaching. Uh, we'd love to get more opportunities in that field and uh, the business stuff, obviously, because of the virus happening is a little bit slow, but hopefully it'll pick up soon. You talk about that, that smoothness. How much help and support is there when you, uh, when you stop playing? Do you, is it in abundance or do you have to go looking for it? or? <clears throat> I think there's a bit of both. I think PCA do a reasonably good, reasonably good job in regarding uh, providing stuff for players in regards to what they want to do after cricket. Mm. I think, yeah, I think, I personally don't think twelve months contract help uh, a cricketer. Okay. Um, I disagree. I personally disagree with that. I think in the winter uh, you should spend that time working out what you want to do. And I know counties will say, well, they're only coming in for three days a week. If I've got a six month thing somewhere, uh, I, I don't know. I, I just find that if I'm, if I'm playing for six, seven months in county cricket, I think they should leave 
the cricketer not under contract because then they are more likely to go and search for stuff. But if you're having to go and train for three week, three days a week or four days a week during the winter, you still have that cushion of, oh, well, I've still got my job off of uh, county cricket. I know there'll be arguments against it. I know people say, well, you know, if you're not doing anything, then people can just do whatever they want. They could turn up overweight and get drunk in the winter and put on weight. Well, if they do, you just find them when they turn up 1st of April, May, whenever it is, uh, for fitness testing. It's your responsibility. Yeah. And I just think as a professional cricketer, the more onus is put back on the professional cricketer, the better. But I just I don't agree with the talk of my contracts. I know that doesn't help. But that's the way the system is. Yeah. It's how it is. What can you do? You talked earlier about um, sort of manage uh, the technical side, but also then passing on your experience of managing a season. When it comes to you for coaching, how much is is actual technical work, and how much is that mental side of the game and being able to manage scenarios in your season? I think it depends on the situation. Depends on what the per, the person, or who the person is, and what stage of the career that person is. Um, I think if if there's a young guy who's played one or two test matches and he's got a problem with that sort of snub, it's clearly it's a technical glitch. Uh, but if there's a person who's sort of 32 and he finds himself uh, out of the out of the team, uh, then it can't be technical. Uh, I think it's more so mental, and also depends on you know what off-field stuff is happening. So I think it's more managing the player, and that's the beauty of coaching. I find that. Not every time something is going wrong on the field, it is technical. It, there's a lot of factors that go on uh, in, a, in a sportsman mind that could um, influence the way they perform and how well or how badly they perform. Um, and I think that's man management. I think that's what it comes down to. If you can man manage players and try and understand the player and I think that's where coaching is, runs deeper than the, the time the player spends at the training ground. I think coaching runs deeper than that. I think you've got to know the player on a personal level and a professional level to understand what that makes that person tick. What are his motivations? What, how does he like to be managed? How, what kind of structure does that player need for him to be up for training, up for the game every time? You've got to understand the mindset of people because not everybody is the same and it just doesn't work like that. Um, I might want to just have 10 throwdowns before a game. Um, ben Stokes might want an hour and a half net. Doesn't mean I'm doing anything right or it doesn't mean he's doing anything right or I'm doing anything wrong. It doesn't work like that. It's what makes me in the best state of mind for me to go and perform. And old school coaches will say, well, he's, he's training for an hour and a half. He must, get, he must have a better chance. No, because if I've done my four hours training the day before the game, I'm in a right state of mind to perform. And there's too much cliche coaches out there who say, well, he's working hard. Well, how do you know if I'm, not, if I'm working hard or not? I might have had a net yesterday, but you, the coach wasn't there. I was training with a friend of mine. You know, so there's a lot of stuff you've got to, so back to the athlete but you're going to manage them better I think that for me is very important and that's I sort of place a lot of onus on that kind of stuff 
And um, how much do you think your experience as, as a player and been coached by you know lots of different coaches through your time, how much has that affected how you do that job as a coach? Well, yeah, I mean, huge, huge, huge. I mean, I always think back of what I needed from a coach and, and, the, and the, what kind of guy did I think was a good coach. Uh, a guy who communicated a lot, lots with me or a guy who didn't communicate much with me. Well, I would say lots because that's what I needed. I wanted communication. I wanted to know exactly, excuse me, you know, how and where and da-da-da-da-da, things like that. So I look for all those qualities that I liked and then um, try and put together my, you know, try and sort of help guys in a way uh, what works for them. So I would try and have a conversation with my players and trying to get to know them, like I said, on an individual basis to get to know what do you need from me? I'm not going to always come and say, right, we're doing this, da, 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 because mm. I can, but I'm not the one who has to go and face that next, that first ball out. It's you guys. So you need to be in the right frame. What do you need from me? Do you need two hour net? I will organize a two hour net for you. I will throw balls at you for two hours so that you're in the right frame of mind to perform. That is what I feel the coach's main role is, to get the players to perform in the right way. If someone's getting out of line, tell them, hey, you're out of line, buddy. Get back in line, because all the other 10 guys are going in this direction. What is your problem? If there's a problem, address it, boom. And so you just gotta find the right balance in terms of you know, striking the right kind of Character that you have to characteristics, I guess, that you have to bring to a dressing room as a coach, and hopefully it works. And <laughs> um, you talked about you know hoping for for more opportunities in coaching. You've coached the UAE, you coached it in Bangladesh. It would would you like to coach in in UK county cricket? Yeah, why not? If there's a right opportunity came along, of course I would. I've I've often offered often often uh, offered services. Uh, in the past to uh, one or two counties, but hasn't quite come through yet. But yeah, I would love to. Why not? Why not? I mean, there's been, a, I mean, I saw an article that you'd, you'd been involved in talking about a lack of, of BME um, coaches within the, in the UK game. Do you think there is a, a reluctance to hire non-white coaches in, in British cricket? Um... There aren't many in the system, so you're not going to hire someone just out of the blue. Mm. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, someone has to be, say, a player of color uh, or ex-player or whatever, even not a player, a coach who has to be in the system. I think the article you're referring to, I, I mentioned that there isn't enough progression mm. uh, in the county game, um, which allows players of color to come through as well as player of non-color. You know, to me, it's not about white or black or brown. It's not, a, for me, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, are you accountable for the job you're doing? Yeah. Are you the academy? How are you the academy director for the last 20 years? How can that be? I mean, are you producing enough England players? Are you producing enough first-team players? Is your team doing well? Are you winning the championship every other year? What are you doing? That is my biggest thing, that if those people have got a job year after year, even if they get relegated or promoted or really, 
if they if they've still got a job, even if things are going badly, then people are not. So say for the example that the guy who was the under thirteen coach uh, ten years ago, he has not made it to the under. If he hasn't made it to the under nineteen coach, as the years have gone on, you know, to work with better players, bigger players. There is no progression. So how can that be? Or I don't know. I just think there needs to be accountability. Um, and yeah, I just find that bizarre. So because there's no progression, people are reluctant to get into that field to say, well, I can only go as far as becoming the, the coach of the under 13 team. That is as far as I'm going to go because they're not, they haven't moved the guy who did the under 15 for the last 15 years. What chance have I got to get to work with the first team? Please explain. Mm. Now, if you haven't, regardless of your colour, you're not going to get into that field. You're not going to. That is my issue with cricket. I think it's a really valid issue. I think you see it in, I don't think it's just cricket as well. I think you look at, you know, football academies where, you know, I've known people who've worked in them and they've always coached that age group irrespective of, of what happens. I think you're absolutely right. I think that accountability is key. Um, I don't have a problem with someone coaching some, you know, an age group for 20 years. No worries. But you better be producing some England players then or some international cricketers. You've got to be producing some big boys because you're doing a bloody good job. But if you're not even producing that, how have you got that job for 20 years? That doesn't add up to me. I mean, you've had, I mean, you've had success. You, you've, uh, you won the, the, the BPL and, and with the UAE, you, you competed in the tournament. Do you, do you have off-field highlights in the same way that you have on-field highlights? Do they, do they compare? Example? Off so, field you know, um, so, you know, win, winning the BPL with, with, your, with your side, how did that compare to you to, say, winning a T20 tournament as a player? Oh, uh, different. Very different. Um, I think as a player, you are, I guess... How can I put it? It's like you're there. You're, you're in front of the world and, and you love the limelight. You love performing, uh, hitting the winning runs or playing a key innings. I loved that. I used to absolutely love it. But I would get, when there was a packed house and I would go and perform, I loved it. I used to, wish we had a fat packed house every day or I used to hear, oh, we're on TV next week and I just couldn't wait to perform uh, for my team. Uh, being a coach is obviously you're very much in the background. You know, you, it's not about you. It's all about the players, it's about the team and you're just sort of making sure that the players are in the right frame of mind to absorb that limelight, what I just spoke about. So they could do that more often and often. So I'm more of a helper um, so yeah, I, look, it's a different role. Um, yeah, that's a, probably the best way I could describe it. I think I spoke to someone and they said they found it easier to enjoy the success of as a coach because they weren't in that bubble. They kind of looked in at it from the outside and kind of took a step back and and could do that easier. Was that an emotion that you maybe found or? Um. No, I, I quite enjoy being involved. But again, I, it's not about me, you. And when I was a player, I was a pretty loud player in the dressing room. You could often hear me. But as a coach, 
I'm only heard, you know, people know I'm there, but I'm not like, you know, the, the players have to, I feel they're the one who runs the show. I'm the helper. And of course, I can let people know when, when, when things are not right. You know, this is not acceptable. And this is the standard we expect to be performing at. Um, but I try and stay very calm. I try and help guys go and deal with the pressure out there because, you know, in the middle of the ground, there's 20,000, 30,000 people watching you. There's no one watching you in the dressing room. There's mm. only 10, 12 of us. So if I can make a dressing room less pressurized situation, uh, environment, sorry, not situation, the better because then they can, the players can go and deal with the pressurized situation out in the middle in a, in a better state of mind, I feel, and more uh, a mind where they're more better prepared for that. So that's how I sort of try and operate in a dressing room when I'm coaching. I, I, you know, just to touch on your playing career, what what were your your highlights? Do you have ones that sort of live long in your memory? Is the uh, are there certain moments that you know stand out as a those are my career playing highlights? Oh, like most people, test cap, yeah. test debut. I was fortunate enough to do really well on my test debut in India, uh, mm-hmm. playing on in the called upon on the last in you know, the eleventh hour. Uh, and when I performed and we won the test match, uh, getting a one-day hundred against India, again for England, all the England highlight stuff, you know, being involved in uh, certain games which we ended up winning. Um, yeah, things like that, really. No different to anybody else, really, you know, test table and things like that. Do you have, on that, do you have sort of memorabilia from your playing days around the house or is it in a box in the garage or in the loft? Is it, is it on show or hidden away? Um, yes, I've got some stuff around, not around the house as such, in my office. <laughs> I've got my test shirt, my, my bats and my couple of things that I framed, which I'm extremely proud of. My test cap. Um, again, I'm extremely proud of that. But it's just confined to my office space i've got a big games room that kind of stuff which is where i display my stuff and the rest of the house is very much normal there's no cricket stuff i've given away a lot of lot of lot of cricket stuff away a lot of cricket shirts england stuff track suits because i feel that we get given so much and all they're going to do is sit in the loft and collect dust if i can give that to someone who might think oh my god i've got away shots england track suit maybe i could inspire one person and if i do i feel that tracksuit's done its job mm. uh it's pointless me holding on to stuff so i you used to get like 10 12 shirts every year of england shirts or whatever i've just kept one shirt one england shirt one one day shirt one test shirt one shirt from my ipo day one team that i've played for just the one shirt mm. and the rest of it i've just given everything away to someone you know kids who play cricket uh, yeah. friends of mine who play cricket you know well, what's better than to turn up in an okay it's an old England tracksuit but it's an England tracksuit why not use it I think you're absolutely right my my daughter has one of Stephen Finn's um, England shirts and she you know whenever anyone talks about cricket the first thing she always says is I've got one of Stephen Finn's England shirts it's oh, there you, know, you, go. What, you know she loves it it's great um on talking about shirts, I, I have one of my sort of cricketing, I don't know, obsessions is squad numbers. You wore sort of a variety through your days. Were there any, was there any significance to those numbers that you wore? You, uh, you wore three 
99, 69. Was there anything that drew you to those numbers or were they just given to you or? No, I just, I just, I used to go through phases of uh, my life, I guess. Just uh, bored of my number, let's try something else. So uh, I'm bored of that one. What else is available? That one, okay, yeah, let's go with that. Uh, it wasn't, uh, I don't know if you think I'm uh, superstitious or something. No, not really about numbers. It's a number, it's a sticker on the back of the shirt. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Some people sort of talk about, you know, they want desperately wanted that number because it has some significance, but then others like, <clears throat> like no, I don't care. So it's just yeah, it's I'm... a number. Um, what what advice would you give to a young player now, sort of starting out in their cricketing career? Um, advice would be to spend two or three weeks in the winter, in the real world, and realize how lucky you are playing sport, doing a job that you absolutely obviously love. It doesn't feel like work. And do it for as long as you can. Those would be my, my words of advice to a younger. And what about someone coming, you know, like you talked about earlier, someone who's just hit maybe 30, 32, and coming towards the end of their career, what would you turn around and say to them? Um, again, you're a long time retired, uh, but plan for your retirement, you know, when you're sort of late 20s, uh, that's just probably as late as you want to leave it. Um, and think about lifestyle, how you want to live. I think that's the most important thing. I don't think people realize what it takes to maintain a particular lifestyle. You know, you get used to a particular lifestyle. What else is out there you could actually do that you could maintain uh, the lifestyle that you obviously enjoy when you do play cricket. So if you can do that, um, then you know, you, the transition will be a lot smoother. And OHR in five years' time, what, what's he doing? What's, what's that? Um, hopefully still lots of coaching. Um, hopefully still uh, doing my property business stuff um, and just watching my kids grow up and uh, hopefully help them. Uh, along the way, uh, that's probably the most important thing to me. And the secret of a happy retirement from playing from cricket? Um, smooth smooth tri- transition. I think that's key. Uh, but you've got to plan it. You definitely have to plan your transition. I think transition is key. And you've got to realise, again, like I touched on earlier, lifestyle and what you want, what you enjoy doing. You've got to think about it. Uh, while you're playing, use cricket. Use cricket to set yourself up for the rest of your life. I think that's very important because through cricket, you can meet so many people in this world. So many opportunities can come your way, but you've got to you know, be proactive. You can't just sit on your backside and expect them to come to you. I thought OA took a lot of sense and it's clear he's passionate about everything he does and loves the game. I'd love to see him get an opportunity to coach in the UK and follow up the successes he's had abroad. Next time on the Back to the Pavilion podcast, we talk to a player who represented his home county Durham and then North Ants before being released in 2013, despite having a first class bowling average of just over 25. Since then, he's traded playing cricket for the administration of another sport. So tune in next time as we welcome Luke Evans back to the pavilion. 
please do get in touch. I love to hear from you. The best way is on Twitter where you can tweet me at Lloydzilla. That's all from me for now. So take care of yourselves and others. Bye-bye and see you next time. Bye.